Should we just sing the rest of that? You guys want to do that? <laughs> That's a great song, isn't it? Well, uh, so glad to see all of you who've come back safely from spring break and you've uh, picked a good Sunday to be here because today is going to be the day that we wrap up the series that we've been doing on the Holy Spirit, who Jesus told us and promised us it would be the greatest gift that he could ever give to his church. And we've looked at the reasons why that that's true, because the, the Spirit is a gift of the presence of God. It's the gift of the truth of God, the conviction of God. It's all these beautiful, wonderful gifts. And over and over in Scripture, in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is called uh, the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the comforter. And so today, I want to share with you, as we wrap this series up, one of the most comforting aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives and that is that the Holy Spirit seals us. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I want to show you what this looked like in the life of Jesus when this happened to him. And then I want us to consider what it might look like in your life and in my life, okay? So if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of John, John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And we're going to start in verse 27. And here it is what what Jesus said. He's going to say something, and then it probes us to dig deeper to kind of figure out when and where this happened. Okay, so John 6, 27. Here's what we read. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus is referring to himself. For on him, on me, Jesus says... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus is saying here that that God has sealed me, approved of me. Now, the question is, when did this happen in the life of Jesus? Well, flip over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and we're going to see this occasion where Jesus receives the sealing and the approval of the Father, okay? Mark chapter one, verse nine, it says here, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, while Jesus, we know, was God in the flesh, we know as well that he was also human. So he had to grow. He had to develop. Scripture even attests to this fact. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew both mentally and he grew both physically as well. All right? So when Jesus was born in the manger, uh, it's not like he came out talking, okay? It's not like he opened his mouth and said, behold, this stable stinketh, right? It's not what he said. No, he was a real baby, which means he really had to grow. He really, you know, struggled with emotions like all of us do growing up. He was tempted with sin like the rest of us when we're growing up and even into our adult years, right? Right? So the father gives this gift to the son. At the very onset of Jesus' ministry, the father affirms Jesus' identity. He affirms his mission by saying 
to Jesus, you are my son. You're my beloved. On you, my favor rests. And the father sends his spirit to the son. He seals him with the spirit. Now he did this, I'm convinced, because there would be a lot of other voices coming into Jesus' life to question his identity. Right after his baptism, we know that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness where he hears another voice for 40 days and 40 nights. He hears the voice of someone say, if you are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. If you really are the son of God, go up to the temple and take a leap off if you are the son of God because the scriptures say that that, that God will give his angels charge over you. And even after that 40 days in the wilderness, there was still the voices in Jesus' life. Some voices said to him, if you are the son of God, why do you continue to hang around all these sinners and tax collectors? If you are the son of God, let us make you our king. Because through your power, we can topple Caesar and we can make the streets run red with Roman blood. If you are the son of God, someone said to him, do a little miracle for me. Wow me, and I might save your life. Others blindfolded him and punched him and then said this, if you are the son of God, prophesy for us and tell us who it was that punched you if you are the son of God. And some of the last voices Jesus heard is when he hung suspended on the cross and he heard different murmurs from the crowd say that day, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross and save yourself and when you do, then we will believe. All through his life, Jesus was surrounded by all these voices. Lead us, feed us, free us, teach us, heal us, save us, help us. And when Jesus pleased the voices, they would shout out things like, Hosanna, son of David. When he didn't please those voices, those same voices would say, crucify him. The amazing thing about Jesus was, even though there was all these voices swirling around him, always trying to bring into question who he was and whose he was, Jesus never lost heart. He never questioned his identity. He never wavered from his mission. Somehow he was able to have this amazing poise and immovability, even though you and I know he was utterly alone. And I'm convinced there's one reason why. Because he was simply listening to the one voice that really, really mattered. And he made it a priority in his life to regularly retreat to that voice. Over and over in the Gospels, here's what we read, that it was common for Jesus, it was regular for him, very early in the morning to get up and go off to a quiet, solitary place. 
Sometimes it was the mountains, sometimes the Garden of Gethsemane, sometimes the Sea of Galilee, but always for the same reason, to hear from that one voice, to reconnect, to be reaffirmed, you are my son. You're my beloved. With you I am well pleased. My favor rests on you. There's so much power in those words, friends. A few weeks ago, when my wife and son returned home from Guatemala with the rest of the team here at Bachelor Creek, I was so excited to debrief Seth. He, this was his first time out of the country, the first mission trip, you know, and when you're a pastor and one of your kids goes on a mission trip, you want to hear kind of all about their experience and, and what happened and what God did and who'd you meet and where'd you go and what did you witness while you were down there. So Seth's telling me a little about the trip. He's telling me about some of the people that he met and he, he specifically points out this little boy and his dad who were from Dallas, Texas, that met up with our group when our group got to Guatemala and tell me about this little boy and his dad. And I said, well, tell me something about that. He goes, well, you know, he says, I I noticed something. He said, sometimes the dad would just turn to his son and say, I love you, son. Now, when you're a parent and your kids share something like that with you, all sorts of alarms start going off in your head, right? Because immediately, you know what I started doing? I started questioning myself. Well, I know I tell Seth I love him a lot and that I'm proud of him, but if I tell him all the time, then, then why did he notice when that dad did it? And why did he make it a point to tell me that he noticed when that dad did it, right? And so without really trying to make too big of a deal about it, here's what I've simply tried to do ever since then. Just about every day, I'll just try to catch him in a moment, whether it's when we're passing each other somewhere in the house or he's just sitting down somewhere reading or something, I'll just say, hey, Seth. I love you, son. And he just kind of giggles and chuckles a little bit and looks at me, you know. But I'll tell you what, friends. No person I've ever met, especially no child I've ever met, ever, ever, ever tires of hearing a parent say, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You are my beloved child. I'll tell you what I have seen and people I've worked with or counseled with or tried to help in some form or fashion. I've seen the tragic results of a child growing up in a home where they never heard those words. Not from a mom, not from a dad, not anybody. And it messes with you your whole life. And I've met those men and those women who were regularly told growing up, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, I'm proud of you, with you I am well pleased. And you know what I've noticed about those individuals? They can face their fair share of critics and even their fair share of crosses and face them boldly. And so the father says in essence to the son, I don't care what those other voices say about you. I don't care if they hail you or if they hate you. I don't care if they want to crown you or if they curse you and want to kill you. You are my son, my beloved. My favor rests on you. And here's the question I have for us. 
if Jesus, the sinless Son of God, needed that ministry of the Holy Spirit being poured into his life on a regular basis, then how in the world are you and I going to endure the kind of kingdom living we're called to without that voice? The good news is we don't have to. Because the good news is that the same spirit that sealed Jesus, affirmed Jesus, is the same spirit that affirms and seals you and I. Listen to Paul's words. Paul paints this picture perfectly in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 13. He says here, and you, he's talking about the church, the body of Christ, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Listen to this. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is key. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You were marked. You were sealed in the Holy Spirit. Now, let me talk to you for a moment about what that means, okay? There's a perfect analogy in our culture that relates to this. If you're married, at some point in the relationship with your significant other, you had to have a very critical conversation. You had to define the relationship, right? Early on, you had to say, okay, are we going to just be dating Or are we going to be dating now exclusively, right? And then if that went as planned as you hoped it would, then there would be the idea, the thought of engagement. And what engagement did was it signified your desire to one another that we want to make this more of a permanently binding commitment to one another, right? And when a man proposes marriage to a woman and gets engaged to her, what does he give her? An engagement ring. That engagement ring is this tangible expression of our commitment to one another. That the relationship has been defined and we're not going anywhere. I'm always going to be here for you. Now by custom... This ring needs to be something of value and beauty because this ring symbolizes the richness and the depth of a promise that goes to the deepest levels, right? That I'm not going to leave. We can count on one another. I remember when I gave my wife her engagement ring, she used to look at it just over and over and over and over I think because it was so small, she just wanted to make sure it was still there, (laughs) you know. But really, I think there's a better reason. I think because every time she looked at that ring, you know what it was? It was a reminder that would help set herself at ease sometimes. It was a reminder that told her this, that even though he's six hours away in Kentucky at college, there's a man down there who's pledged to you, and you to him. 
And that ring didn't just say something to her and say something to me. It also said something to everybody else who saw it. Specifically, it said to all those dudes on the prowl at Indiana Wesleyan, hands off, buddy. The relationship's been defined. The deal has been sealed. The date is set, right? Now, here's what you need to understand. God doesn't want you to just belong to him. God wants you to know without a doubt that you belong to him. He wants you to live every day with this amazing, assured confidence. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. Because here's what I've noticed. Anytime the children of God don't live with that kind of assured confidence, all sorts of bad things can start to happen. You know what starts to happen? We start to get anxious about our eternal destiny. We start to really question our identity in Christ. It's almost like the flower. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You know, just kind of depending on the day. Then we become vulnerable to all these voices around us that want to kind of lure us or tempt us in certain ways. And we just live kind of discouraged, defeated lives when we don't have that kind of assured confidence. So I want to talk specifically for the rest of our time together to those of you who call Jesus Lord, to those of you who know Jesus and know what it means to be in relationship with him. And I want to talk to you about how there's going to be some different occasions in life where you're going to need to do exactly what Jesus did, and you need to get away, silence all the voices, and seek that one voice that, that it is so much more important than all the other voices. Some different occasions in your life when you're going to need to do that. For some of you, that occasion is right now. But let me talk to you with you about a few of these occasions. Number one is when you face disappointment. Just to kind of make sure we're on level playing ground here, how many of you all have ever been disappointed in something? Yeah, it's the common shared human experience, right? Paul addresses this. Paul acknowledges, yeah, life stinks at times. But there's hope. Here's how Paul says it. He kind of words it a little bit different, but we get the idea of what he's talking about. 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know... That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. Now let's stop right there, okay? This earthly tent Paul is talking about. What's he talking about here? Huh? He's talking about our bodies, our life. If our life comes to an end, if our body's destroyed, okay, that's what he's talking about. Then we have a building from God. In other words, we might cease to exist on earth, but it's not game over entirely, okay? An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, though, he says, while we're still here, while we're living in this tent, we groan. We get frustrated. We get overwhelmed. We get burdened by just the situations and the circumstances of living in a broken, fallen world with other broken, fallen people all around us, right? It just makes us go, ugh. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Yep. 
Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. In other words, you ever have those days where you say, I just don't want to be with, I just want to be with Jesus. Lord Jesus, could you just come right now? Anybody in here? Yeah. Because, he says, when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. I love how profound the scriptures can be at times, right? When you're clothed, it means you're not naked. That's deep, isn't it? (laughs) For while we are in this tent, while we're in these bodies, in this world, living this life, we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Listen to this. Who has given us the spirit as a what? As a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So Paul says here, layman's terms, you got a tent, I've got a tent, we've all got a tent. And in this world, we receive messages on a very regular basis that you really can't be happy unless you got a great tent. So it seems like anybody and everybody is trying to do whatever we can to make our tent a little greater. That's why we join health clubs. That's why we read through diet books. It's why we clothe our tents very, very carefully. It's why we have tent specialists in the medical field who said, you got too much tent, we can cut some of that off. You want some more tent in some other areas? We can put some on, right? Because the truth of the matter is, friends, with every passing year, your tent and my tent are going to sag a little bit more, right? And sooner or later, your tent is going to come down. It's just the nature of a tent was never designed to be a permanent dwelling place. It's always, always, always temporary, right? Now, you know what I find kind of crazy? The older I get, the more I find myself having conversations with my peers about the nature of my tent and how my tent is failing me. I find myself talking to my friends about aching backs, stiff joints, sore muscles, Bones that creak. I got to admit to you, folks, in my younger years, the thought of having those kinds of conversations with my friends was a nightmare. We're talking about our bodies. I mean, what are we going to do when we're really old? Like 50, right? I mean, what's... (laughs) Stepped on a nerve there. Says the one who just threw his shoulder out in Guatemala, okay? (laughs) Oh, but we groan, don't we? We groan when our tent isn't as successful as somebody else. When my tent isn't as popular as somebody else's tent. When my tent's marriage 
or my tense career isn't all cracked up like I thought it would be at this stage of life in my tent. And if you live long enough, friends, you will groan because your tent will start to fail you. And Paul says that very fact, the very fact that we're breaking down, we're creaking, we're cracking, we're aging, we're bending, we're hurting, is a reminder of something. We weren't made just for this tent. Something better is coming. And how do we know that? Paul says there's one reason we know. God has given us his what? Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the Spirit is the one who whispers to you when you're disappointed, when you're groaning, when you're hurting, when you're, uh, the Spirit's the one who says, listen, listen, listen. Don't lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't be overwhelmed. Because guess what? The deal's been sealed. The wedding's on the horizon. The best is yet to come. The relationship has been totally defined. So listen to me, friends. When you're disappointed like Jesus, Jesus faced times of disappointment. Do we remember how saddened he was to hear of the news that his cousin John the Baptist just had his head cut off? When Jesus was disappointed at his followers and their lack of faith over and over and over again. The times at night when I'm sure he was maybe trying to rest his body and he knew about that impending time that lay ahead of him in the future where he had an appointment with a Roman cross. So what did Jesus do on a regular basis over and over? withdrew to a quiet, solitary place to hear that voice. You're my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. When you face disappointment, you need to do that exact same thing. There's another occasion in life when you're gonna need to do what Jesus did. When you're alone, Because again, just like part of the fabric of the human experience is disappointment, part of that same experience is this as well. Rejection, isolation, brokenness, and estrangement. We've all been there, have we not? They came Jesus' way, and he was the most wonderful person who ever lived. And here's what I know. If you're like me, when you're alone or having a pity party, here's what you'll try to do. You'll turn to something. Some person, some person, some achievement, some purchase, something to try to fill that void in your heart. 
or you'll try to do something to impress people enough to where they'll kind of pour their words on you and you hope that those words make it somewhere in you that fills that void that you have. You ever try to do that? Spend your way to wholeness? Achieve your way to wholeness? Please somebody to wholeness? Scripture attests, friends, there's only one voice, only one, that can really feel that void that the human heart has to not feel alone anymore. This is why Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That that's where we should be going to, Abba, Father, when we're feeling alone. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies. Listen to this. This is for you. This is me. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But guess what? You've got to be real quiet at times to really hear that voice. I've shared with you this story before. It's been a while ago, but it's one of my favorite stories that I ever come across. It's about a lady named Mary Ann Bird, and she writes about this time when she had what she calls the whisper test. Let me share with you in her words, her experience. She says here, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen mouth, a crooked nose, and lopsided lips, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade who we all adored, Mrs. Leonard. She was short, round, sparkling, a happy woman. Annually, we had a test, a hearing test, and Mrs. Leonard gave the test to each person. I knew from years past that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something and we would have to repeat it back. Something like, the sky is blue or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put in her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life when Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. Truth is, so many of you are here today. Where you're at in life, where you're at in this place today, because one day in your life, the Holy Spirit of God wooed you and called you and invited you and whispered to you and said, 
I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. And you accepted that invitation. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day when you became a part of a community? A community where anyone who is willing is welcome and wanted. I'm here to tell you, friends, God has defined that relationship. You have been sealed in the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing to everything that your father has as an inheritance for his children. And I believe that in the wisdom of Jesus, that shortly before he left this earth, he got his followers together. Okay, guys, we're, we're going to do something a little different, he says. I want you to take this cup that represents my blood, and I want you to take this bread that represents my body, my, my body, and I want you to understand that as often as you do this, as often as you eat and as often as you drink, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember every time you do this how loved you are. I want you to hear that whisper from your father testified to the spirit that lives in you You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my beloved. On you, my favor rests. Because in this crazy, chaotic world that we live in, we need to have built into our regular routine where we find ourselves in the quiet, where we withdraw to kind of a solitary place and we make that moment available to hear that voice you're mine and that's why each week we make it a point in our service to build into it a time where you can hear your father assure you of where you stand not just who you are but whose you are So as we get ready to partake of this time together, I want you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the precedent that Jesus himself set before us, that he often withdrew to solitary places to connect with you, to have his identity reaffirmed. And as a result, his He never wavered from his mission, Lord. He never lost that heart of why he was here. It's because he was listening to that one voice above all the other voices in his life. The voices that tried to beat him down, the voices that tried to get him to question who he was, the voices that attacked him. Father, I just pray that today people can leave this place with a sense of peace, of knowing They've been sealed in the spirit of God himself. The relationship has been defined. And the best is yet to come. 
May we leave today with that peace, Lord, hearing that one voice that is louder than any other voice in our lives. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.